So, welcome. Glad you're here today. Um, my thanks today, Wernley, for um, spending some time on covenants. Looking forward to him wrapping that up at some point in the future. The link between the Davidic covenant and the New Covenant is uh, is strong and and uh, gratifying and educational to look at. Uh, if you want to spend some time reading about the new covenant and its superiority, you can spend some time over in the book of Hebrews. makes it very clear why the new covenant was not only essential, but so far, so far superior to any previous covenant. Uh, today, um, just for clarity, we've seen God say some things to Abram as we've been going through the book of Genesis, but it doesn't become a covenant that is formalized by God until chapter 15. So chapter 15, we'll get to the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, that really hasn't happened yet, uh, but, but we'll get there. So to get back into where we're at now, we're starting chapter 13 today. But let's talk about where we've been so far from with Abram. Where did when, or what was the conditions under which we first met Abram? where he was initially living. Where was he? What was going on? He was a pagan, wasn't he an Ur? Pagan, Ur. So i got a little bit of a map up here that's so small you can't see. So I made one to help you understand where those are at that's so small you can't see either. But anyway, <laughs> if you understand the Mediterranean, this line around Canaan is just to kind of say, here's where the, what we call the land of Canaan. Uh, Ur was down in the Chaldean area, right? Okay, good. So we met him at Ur. Uh, he was living there as a pagan. Uh, we see all that begin to unfold in the genealogies of Genesis chapter 11. Now when he left Ur, where did they go? Haran. Haran. Which, somewhere up in this area probably, maybe down in this area, we could have an argument with many scholars about that. But they went up to Haran and what was who, who led them to Haran? His dad, wasn't it? His dad it was Abram's father, Terah, and who went along? Um, I, 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 I'm sure there's a story there I just missed that I would love to have, but we'll go on. Well, you no, okay. So, uh, who went along with uh, Terah and Abram, father and son, to Haran? Lot. And what do we know about Lot at that point? Lot's his nephew. Lot's his nephew. And what about Lot's father? Remember? So Lot's father had previously died. So that elevated, there were three brothers listed in Genesis children of Turan and of Terra, sorry, not Turan, Terra. And one of the brothers died and Lot was his son. And in the traditions of that era, it would not be unusual that that would kind of elevate Lot to be kind of equal, kind of brotherly with the other two. So they go up to Haran, which by the way, his father's name was Haran, no linkage there. Lots of reuse of names in this era. As far as we know, there's no linkage to why, why it was there. 
And what happens in Haran? It is almost certainly where God went to Abraham and said, okay, you need to leave your father's house and your, your country and go to a land that I will show you. It specifically says you're going to leave your relatives, your father's house. I'm going to show you the land. And God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. This is the beginning of chapter 12. He also says, I'm going to bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that treat you poorly. But something else happened in this recorded just before God comes to Abram uh, at Haran. Just before, let me say it this way, just before Abram leaves Haran, there's something else that happens, and that is his father dies. Terah was 205 years old, according to chapter 12, and um, he died. And so... God comes to Abram. Now, we tend to think he came to Abram at Haran. It really makes the most sense. But in reality, we really don't know if it was clear back in Ur when he calls Abram out and Haran is a stop along the way, or if it happens at Haran. It probably almost certainly is Haran, but there's some uncertainty there, a small amount of it. So how old was Abram when he left Haran? Better remember? See all these little details sneak away in just a little bit of time, don't they? You're only 15 years off. He was 75. So Abram was 75 when he left uh, Haran, and God, and, and it just says uh, he went to Canaan. It says first he came to Shechem, and so in my little map here, here's the Jordan river, here's the Red Sea, here's the Dead Sea, not Red Sea, uh, Sea of Galilee, here's the Dead Sea, the Jordan River runs between them, and so it, it kind of shows most of the map, so I'm kind of going a little north and then coming down into Shechem is the northernmost of these four cities that I've drawn, and that's where it says he goes to first, <clears throat> there's the Oak of Mora there, um, just kind of as an identifying place. And it says in chapter 12, verse 7, and the Lord appeared to him. So that sounds very visual, doesn't it? But in some way, the Lord came into his presence, and he said uh, that these promises were going to be kept, and that uh, these promises were for him and his descendants. Now, the interesting thing about this point is, in terms of he and Sarah's relationship, how many descendants does he have? zero because Sarai was barren. Abram responded to that by building an altar uh, around a mountain east of Bethel. So here is Bethel and Ai, so somewhat east of Bethel, a little bit south of Shechem. That's where he builds this altar, and it says, and he called on the name of the Lord. And he also then camped between Ai and Bethel, says it pitched his tent there, built another altar and called on the name of the Lord. And from there he proceeded to the Negev, which is south of the land of Canaan. How long did all that take? We have no idea. But this is the path that came Haran down to Shechem, pitched a tent between 
Bethel and Ai, build a couple of altars, and goes down to the area of the, of the Negev. And what happens down there? Do you remember what the problem was in that area? They had a famine. How did Abram respond to the famine? What, would he do? what did he do? They went to Egypt. Abram has a concern on his way to Egypt. What's his concern? Yeah, he's got a beautiful wife, and so if they kill him, they could have his wife. He's got a quick and, quick and ready solution, and what's his solution that he tells Sarai? Sister. Tell them you're my sister. And so they show up. How does that work out? Well, between the showing up and the where it really isn't good, what happens in between? Yeah, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, um, some of his henchmen said, man, there, she is a beautiful woman traveling with him, his sister. And so Pharaoh said, uh, not want to miss an opportunity, takes her into the, his dwelling to be his wife. And um, something happens to Abram. What happens to Abram? He prospers. What does he get out of the deal? Pharaoh gives him sheep, oxen, and donkeys, some of them in large breeding herds, or at least herds large enough to breed. And so now, so he's been treated well. Sarai's in Pharaoh's house. What happens? Well, but how do they get there? God brings plagues to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not, I'm going to say it in our vernacular, he's knocking on Abram's door. What have you pulled off on me? You didn't tell me that she was your wife, which we don't know how Pharaoh found out, but he figured it out. So take all your stuff and get. Um, and they help him with his navigation. They provide an escort, sort of that make sure he makes it to the border before you let him stop. So he leaves angered, with Pharaoh angered, um, and Abram is escorted out of the country, which takes us to where we are now. So kind of getting the speed back up. We're in chapter 13, and we're going to cover chapter 13 today. So I would be looking for a volunteer or volunteers to read through one through the end of the chapter in, in chapter 13 of Genesis. So... Oh. <coughs> <coughs> so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, and he and his wife, and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich, livestock and silver and gold, and he went on a journey from the Negev as far as Bethel, into the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I. So the place of the altar, which he had made there, formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, who also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not 
sustain them while dwelling together from their possessions so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we are brothers. It is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me to the left. Then I will go to the right, or to the right, and I will, and you will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan that was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the city in the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, exceedingly sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I will give to you, to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise. Walk about the land to its length and breadth, where I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came to dwell in the oaks and neighbor, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. <coughs> So in, in chapter 13 and in the first part of chapter 14 at least, we're setting the stage for the establishment of Abram in the area of Canaan and kind of beginning to see uh, what kind of a situation he was living in, uh, his own character, uh, a bit about Lot and, and how all that is progressing. So in verse 1 we see there that Abram left Egypt and went to the Negev. Uh, and so he 
He moved back over to the area where the famine had been. Um, and I say moved, I don't mean moved and set, stayed necessarily. And we'll see that as we move through the passage here in a minute. But who went with him? What went with him? What did you see there? When he went to the Negev from Egypt. Lot went with him and the they took over the position. His wife, his possessions, and Lot went along. So we didn't see Lot mentioned in chapter 12. This whole trip down to Egypt and all that, Lot's just a non-player as far as what's recorded in Genesis. But now we see, oh, Lot's really been trailing along all the time. And so apparently that uh, Lot had been had been involved in all of that, uh, probably mostly as a spectator. In verse 2, we find out that Abram is very wealthy. He's got livestock. He's also got silver and gold, meaning lots of money, valuable, valuable um, minerals in that sense. So I have a question. How did Abram become rich? Well, the Pharaoh helped him along. Uh, but we, yeah, substantially, uh, as far as the livestock in particular is listed, we really don't know. Um, did he inherit it from his father Terah? Did he earn it somewhere? Uh, careful trading, we don't really know. But somewhere along the way, it becomes clear that Abram is a wealthy man. And then in verse 3, it says, he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel. Now, an interesting thing there is, in my mind, it's real easy to say, well, he got thrown out of Egypt for cause, and then he went up to the area, to the Negev, and then he just kept right on going and went up to Bethel AI. But if you notice there, the word it says, his journeys. So we don't know what kind of wandering Abram did. He, he was moving around in various places, and so he, he went to the Negev, and before he gets done journeying around, maybe it was a straight line, maybe he went numerous places along the way, but he winds up at uh, Bethel to the place that he had pitched the tent before. So he went back down to that area that when he first entered the land of Canaan, he went through Shechem to this area between Bethel and Ai, and had pitched a tent and put up his second altar, he went back to that second altar. And again, it says, Abram calls on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? What Can you describe or try to describe what you think of when you hear that phrase, Abram calls on the name of the Lord? Okay, prayed. Would you add any other possibilities there? Yeah, we don't really, we don't, we don't exactly it really doesn't become clear. Now, one thing that does happen when it, the scriptures talk about the call, God calling Abram out of his father's household, and it says he obeyed and did it in faith. And we're going to hear in faith if we go to chapter, if we go to Hebrews chapter 11. So there's some faith there. And so that's probably by then the conversion is probably mostly complete because it says that faith was reckoned as righteousness. And he had seen Yahweh embodied. Yeah. And so that, I'm sure, made a big I mean, I don't know about most people. Yeah, I do. 
and I would fit in that. If if God appeared to us, um, you know, we're probably ready to be converted at that moment. Um, so um, that, that's a good point. So what what does this mean to call on the name of the Lord? Well, I think prayer certainly be a part of it. I, I think another piece of it would be he's 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 affirming who God is. It's probably their form of worship to say, "You're God." I'm here, you sent me here, what's next? Or whatever went into that communication. But there's probably worship, prayer, and humility all is probably a part of that. And so he's back at the place where he built that altar, according to verse 4. So he's back to where he pitched his tent. And then when we get into verse 5, we find out that Lot also had flocks and herds and tents. And... This kind of helps us understand a little bit what their holdings were like because tents is plural. So it's an encampment. It's not just a single tent and everybody else is sleeping on the ground kind of a thing. I mean, these guys, both Lot, I mean, we're, we're seeing Lot here. Now, Lot's wealth is listed a little differently. There's no mention of gold or silver, but he does have flocks. And maybe he has gold or silver. It doesn't say he doesn't. But, but these guys are major operations. They're not just, you know, f- five goats and two camels and a cat. I mean, they're, they're, they're a significant operation, and, and both of them are. And so you can imagine um, they're now in the land of Canaan. They're up there between Bethel and Ai. This is an area that's settled, at least, if not developed somewhat, and they're big operations. It's big enough that in verse 6 we're going to see that the land could not support both of them if they were in the same spot. Um, I'm not a big rancher, um, but my dad did run a few cattle starting about the time I was a senior in high school. When my grandparents both had cattle um, and other critters, and I know that they were constantly talking about, well, I can only put this many in that pasture and these in this pasture. Which ones are going where? because the ground would only support so many at a time. So you can imagine if you've got a lot of sheep and camels and donkeys and whatever else, uh, they're out there eating what's there to eat and it's not gonna take long before they realize, well, we've gotta keep this herd moving around. It's not gonna support everybody. You can also begin to imagine the context of what it was like for Abraham and Lot to be in this area. now, I realize land ownership may be very different today. These may have been common grazing areas that nobody felt like they owned them. But even if they were common grazing areas, if you're a, if you're a rancher in that area, how you're going to feel if somebody shows up with two, two different guys show up with two nice big herds of livestock and start eating all the grass. You know, this is, this is going to create a, an interesting situation with the locals, but it doesn't seem to come up. So apparently they, it, it worked itself out. But you can just imagine there are no relatives here. There are no previous friends here. There's, they're in an area of people they just don't know. They literally are foreigners that have moved in with everything. And so there they are, won't support both of them. And strife comes up in verse 7 between the herdsmen of the two groups. Um, and this is where you get this statement that the Canaanite and Perizzites uh, were in the land. And so this is already inhabited. You've got two cities or whatever they were, burgs of some sport, sort there. 
plus the local people. By the way, Canaanites, there's a, that's descendants of Canaan, right? And Perizzites. I tried to find out what are we talking about with Perizzites, and really, I don't know. The word's root comes from villagers or rural people. So maybe the Canaanites tended to be in the cities and these folks tended to be the rural folks. I don't know. But as far as any kind of ethnic background, I didn't learn anything. Uh, one of the commentators I read, so here's, in, in, when you look at verse 7 and you see, oh, the, this is full of Canaanites and Perizzites, he chose to interpret that, and I think this is a little bit of a stretch from the text, but you can see why he might say that. So here's uh, Abram and Lot surrounded by people who would be their enemies. Now, I don't know if they really were enemies, but I can certainly see him going, what are you doing? Your critters are drinking at our wells and our ponds, if they had such a thing as ponds. Uh, you're eating our grass. What's going on? But the strife wasn't with the locals. The strife was with the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot. So we get a little bit of a picture here that it wasn't Abram and Lot were having a headbutting contest, but their herdsmen were struggling when they would meet up out in the, in the grazing areas and so on. And so we see verse 8, Abram is clearly the leader. He comes to Lot and says, look, we shouldn't have any strife between us. And why does he say that? Because we are... Kinsmen. Depends on your version. Brothers. Brothers. Which reinforces a little bit that um, idea that maybe Lot's status now is elevated more to brother than nephew in terms of how he's being treated because of the death of his father. That's kind of the tradition that we're told about in that era. So, and Abram has a solution. What's Abram's solution for their strife? Split up. Okay, and how are they going to decide who goes which way? Yeah, so Abram basically says this. Not enough ground for both of us here. You figure out what you want. You take that. I'll take what's left or some portion of what's left. And so Lot looked around and what did he see? It's in verse 10. He saw the Jordan Valley. And what did he see about the Jordan Valley? Lots of water. Like the Garden of the Lord. What are we talking about here? Garden of Eden, maybe. Garden of Eden probably. <laughs> Another description is like the land of Egypt going to Zor. What are we talking about there? Well, we could start, uh, as we often do, conflict between the commentators on what is this Zor. There were a number of Zors, or Zoars, or however you say it. Um, around the area um, and in, in another passage we would see that it was uh, for when we in, in cha next chapter we're going to get into the war between the kings that come up and take lot and whatever and one of those kings is from Zor 
and it says formerly Bella. And there, there is, there was definitely a Zor that's talked about in the Bible some down here, right about on the southern tip of the Dead Sea. There also was a high plain of Zor over in Egypt. And this high plain was in a in the area where there was a we would probably call it a creek. It isn't listed as a river, but there was a drainage area, a valley that went through there and made that high plain very, very fertile. Which one is it? The commentators all tell you it was one of those two. Some of them very definitely one of them, and some of them very definitely the other one, but in the commentators I read, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I do know that when we get to chapter 14, this is the Zor they're talking about in chapter 14. But here it mentions on the way to Egypt, on the, in Egypt on the way to Zor, so maybe it's this one. But anyway, it's obvious from the context what we're talking about. This is a rich, fertile area. Um, anybody been around the Kansas River Valley? I grew up in the Kansas River Valley. I had one grandparent that lived with bottomland right next to the Kansas River. My other grandparent lived in the Flint Hills up there, which by the way, not to offend anybody, but we have the pretty Flint Hills up there. Um, so that's just, just kind of how it is. If you spend some time up there, you'll know what I mean. But anyway. My brother lived up there, he called him God's country. Yeah, some people do. I'm not sure I would go that far. but. Uh, I did have a business partner from Western Kansas, and he called that God's country. And I'm like, you're not saying Sir Worch being the same God I am. Sorry, no. But anyway, um, and my grandfather that lived in the Kansas River Valley, I mean, it, what I remember most is his alfalfa field. Because he was a very meticulous farmer. We, weeds were just didn't happen. They had short lives. He would see them and kill them just as soon as he saw one carried a corn iron with him all the time, but his, he would replant it every four or five years. He would do some rotating down there and it was irrigated. And when you would walk in this area, you just, the, the ground was super flat. It had been super prepared for this alfalfa. And when you took the alfalfa off, you had this super flat, beautiful, you know, there weren't any bumps or hills. It was just a, just a flat as a pancake alfalfa field and he would get mountains of alfalfa off of it. It was always lush and green because he had the irrigation. So when I think of river valleys, I think of that because my other grandfather farmed the hills and he really wasn't, his main profession wasn't farming. He farmed to have horses. He had cattle so he could play with the horses. That was pretty much, he was a horse lover. But um, such a contrast between the two. I'd help both of them bale. I mean, it wasn't, both of them were baling alfalfa and you would think it was two different crops almost because of the quality and quantity difference. And so here's Lot and he looks over and he sees a river valley. And so I think of the Kansas River Valley when I think of the Jordan Valley here. And, and he saw that and he saw the water and he saw how wonderful it was. And so verse 11 is interesting because they add a word <clears throat> that says something uh, about this choice he makes. It, didn't, it doesn't say that Lot chose to go to the valley of the Jordan and settle down there in 
Sodom. What it says is Lot chose all of the valley of the Jordan. And so Lot looked around at this ground, I mean, and he looks over there and sees this. Abram's the leader, right? Does he not say, well, Abram, I'll go up to here and you can have the rest of it, or, you know, how do we split up this lush valley? He looks at it and goes, hey, this is all mine, and, and pretty much leaves Abram on his own, it looks like. And so Lot chose all of that valley, and he journeyed east. And it says that Abram then, in verse 12, settled in the land of Canaan. So you see this division coming. They're up here, camped between Ai and Bethel. And Lot goes down here, and he wants all of this Jordan Valley, and Abram pretty much lets him have it. Sodom is down here at the southern end of the Jordan River, right before it dumps into the Dead Sea. And so Abram apparently goes over to the Canaan area somewhere, probably a higher plain area, and that's where he settles in. Now, in verse uh, 12, we see that Lot goes to the cities in the valley, and he sets up his tents as far away as Sodom. And we get a picture of Sodom. The men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked. They were sinners against the Lord. They weren't just sinning. They were defiant of God. And, uh, you know, here's a question. Did Lot know this? Well wouldn't take too long for him to figure it out, would it? We don't know what Lot knew when, but here is Lot choosing selfishly, choosing prosperity, choosing to go to the flashy lights. Did they have lights? I don't know, but I think you know what I'm trying to say here. He saw the cities and the excitement of the cities and the, all the opportunities to be part of, the, of this city life down here. And so he goes down and settles amongst these sinners. And in verse 14, uh, we see that uh, the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had left, so Lot's not here, Abram, look up. Look up from where you are. Look north, south, east, and west. All you see, I will give to you and to your descendants for how long did he say forever and so um that's is what this is what he tells to abram look around this is your land it's interesting he waits until after lot moves away because lot technically is not a descendant of abram is he right here and now god is separating out lot's future from abram's He's setting the stage. Now, it doesn't mean that Abram and Lot are now enemies or separated in the sense that they're not family anymore, but these promises are for Abram and his descendants, and you're going to get it forever. And in verse 16, he goes on to say something that's almost hard to believe if you don't know the rest of the story. We know these Old Testament stories, so we know what's coming, but... To Abram and his barren Sarai, he says, I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth. If anyone can count the dust, can you imagine that job? Where would you even start? If anyone can count the dust, then they're going to be able to count your descendants. And so it's a big promise to Abram that uh, he is going to be the father of a great people. And then in verse 17, it gets pretty interesting. 
because he says, Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth. What did God just tell Abram to do? And what's the limits of the journey? I mean, where does the breadth and the length, whichever way you want to assign those two terms, where does it end? And, and clearly, we're going to get more specific promises later um, when they are, when his descendants, after 400 years in Egypt, and walking across the desert and all their mix-ups and mess-ups. I mean, we're not necessarily going to study it in this class, but in Exodus, you'll see where God puts borders on how far he's going to give them land, and it's huge. And so, basically, God's saying to Abram, I've taken you to this region, figure it out, look at it, see it, it's yours. You and your descendants will have it. And so go explore it and see it, it's yours. And so then in verse 18 it says, And then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So he goes just a little bit south. Here's Hebron. Uh, probably got it. No, that's about right. It's, 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 it's west of the, of the Dead Sea ways. Not a long ways from Jerusalem. And that's where he pitches his tents and makes his residence is there in the area of Hebron. Now God has really set the stage here, hasn't he? Because we're seeing that Lot and Abraham both now are settled in this land that God has taken Abram to and Abram trailed along his nephew Lot. And as they make their journey, uh, you know, Abram fumbles around down in Egypt. He messes a few things up, but before he gets done, he's back up in the central area of the land of Canaan, and God has said, this is going to be your land. We also get the stage set for us as the readers of the book. Moses has chosen to record for us not only these journeys, but kind of the stature of these men. This is really the first time that we have been given a picture. Now, most of us probably know from Bible stories, Abraham was a wealthy man. He had servants, he had flocks, and so on. And we know what happens to Lot. We've studied it. We'll see it again as we go through it here in the study of Genesis. <clears throat> but they are now established men in these areas. And when we get over to chapter 14, we're going to see a little bit more about how the culture worked around there. There are kings, <clears throat> but a king mostly is over a city, not a region. And so these men have power, and here's Abram, and he's now a man with some power in around the area of Hebron, and Lot's down in Sodom, and we know the roots that are going to be planted in Lot's life and how they are going to grow. But we now have the, the base plate set up so we can go through and see the history of Abram and Lot here in the book of Genesis. Questions, comments? Was the Jordan Valley part of what God gave Abram? Yes, and beyond. As a matter of fact, all the way to the Euphrates. All the way to the Euphrates. Okay. Um, and in 
my understanding, now we may find a commentator that puts me to shame, but in my understanding, this was the promise. But nowhere in history yet have the Jews truly had dominion over a land that went clear to the Euphrates and frankly went clear down here and covered up a big part of what was Egypt at this time. So it, it's a huge area of which they only, I, I don't know, I'm guessing when I say percentages, but maybe 60% of that promised area have the Jews that really had dominion over in history. And of course, you know, where are the Golan Heights? You know, physically? They're north. And, and don't they border the Jordan Valley a little bit up, up in the north part? So, I mean, you're, you're right in this area that Lot and Abram and all the promises were the, the hit, the tension that's going on today. Of course, you have the Palestinians over along the coast. The Gaza Strip. Gaza Strip. Maybe it's the Gaza Strip that's next to the Jordan. Anyway, um, no, Gaza Strip is over here. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but all of these things that are contentious today were contentious, all, have been contentious ever since um, the Israelites returned after the 400 years in Egypt. Any other questions or comments? Where is the city of Jerusalem? <clears throat> let, me, let me see if I can do a better job of telling you that. Because I, I know super general. Of course, you know, that's a... Well, I think I can go over here. So Jerusalem would be, Hebron I believe is just a little bit south of Jerusalem, but it's over not too far from the Dead Sea. If you look at it in this map here, there's the star. That's the current day. Israel, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeah. So it's close to Zor? No, Zor would be on the very south end. Jerusalem was up on the northern end of the Dead Sea. Any other questions or comments? Well, I knew today was going to go a little on the quick side because, I mean, it's just a general accounting of what happened here. Uh, we're going to have some more next week that will be interesting as some kings exercise some power, cart lot off, Abram shows his abilities. I mean, if you want to start thinking about Abram, he effectively puts together an army out of his servants and some other alliances. So um, Abram's not a small player. He's a major player in the area, and we'll see how he increases his stature significantly next time. So with that, I'm going to say, let's pray, and I'll turn you loose on the world. <laughs> Father, thank you for giving us the history as penned by Moses so that we can know the truth about the beginnings of uh, you having a people born out of the lineage of Abram, and uh, so, Lord, as we, as we go through these passages, let us understand how you are directing history, how you put it together just the way you want it, 
and how valuable it is to be obedient to you and to follow your direction and to enjoy your promises. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.